Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. First, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA, a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Thank you, Manny. I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA and a Corresponding Secretary for PNA Foundation and past President of PNA Southern California, currently an adjunct professor at Charles R. Drew University, Department of Medicine and Sciences here in Los Angeles. Manny? Thank you, Mindy. Today, our guest is Dr. Sigrid Ladores. She's an associate professor at University of Alabama in Birmingham and is director of the PhD program. She's an associate scientist at UAB Cystic Fibrosis Research Center, Minority Health and Research Center, Center for Rep- Women's Reproductive Health, and Center for Palliative and Supportive Care. Dr. Ladores investigates reproductive health concerns in adolescents and young adults with chronic illnesses and has presented her research in local regional, national, and international conferences. She's also a respected scholar and leader in the Philippine Nurses Association of America, serving as the chair of the research committee. Dr. Aldores, welcome back to Rise Up. Thank you, Manny, and thank you, Mindy. Thank you for inviting me to come back. I guess we had fun the first time around, right? That's yes, right. Yes, we surely did. Well, <laughs> Uh, welcome back, really, Dr. Ladores. Or do you want me to call you Sigrid? Please um, call me Sigrid, my goodness. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> so really, it was nice of you to accommodate us again to talk about your interest in research. With that said, though, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got interested in the subject of research? Sure. Yeah. So um, research was probably... Uh, very far from where I thought it was going to end up. Um, I think I shared in my previous podcast with you all that I came from a very humble town of uh, Iloilo City. Actually, um, my other hometown that I would call my hometown is Dumalag, Capiz in the Philippines. So um, very humble beginnings. I thought that it was very exciting as a 15-year-old to immigrate to the U.S. Um, I was most excited about the ability to wear lipstick as a teenager rather than thinking about career options. (laughs) And so um, I thought I did not want to be a nurse, honestly. Um, I uh, fought with my dad when it came to filing paperwork for, um, you know, declaring your major as you um, applied to different nursing schools. Um, but he's very pragmatic and said, what are you going to do um, with a journalism degree? Because that's what I wanted to do. And oh, um, wow. he said, wow. what are you going to write about? Um, who's going to pay you to write about things? How are you going to pay your bills? And food on the <laughs> very pragmatic Asian man. And so um, I very listened terrible. to him. I fought with him and I said, well, how about if we compromise? And um I I try nursing school for one semester. If I don't like it, I'm going to switch out majors. 
And so we shook hands and I kept my promise. I said, I'll give it my all, I'll give it my full try. And thankfully the first semester of nursing school at age 17, I ended up liking it. Um, And so here I am, I'm actually celebrating my 25th year college reunion this coming weekend. Um, 25 years ago, I graduated from college nursing school. So um, yeah, it it worked out okay. (laughs) But, you know, uh, research was far from my my vision because I was happy being a nurse. I was a pediatric nurse. I did a lot of different things in pediatrics, uh, mostly in Florida. I worked at different hospitals there. I did um, home health nursing. I was a field supervisor. I did quality assurance. I did some travel nursing. Um, But then I um, was offered a position to be a faculty member at uh, the University of Central Mm -hmm. Florida in Orlando. And that's how I met Manny uh, through my work with P&A Central Florida. And um, I really enjoyed, um, you know, being a faculty member. And I remember um, our associate dean for research at that time, actually, she was a director for research, um, Dr. Karen Manessis, um, our beloved uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Karen Manessis, may her soul rest in peace. She died in uh, 2018 Mm -hmm. unexpectedly. But um, she is a fellow Filipina, and she was a high-ranking, world-renowned researcher and the kindest, most humble person you'll ever meet. And so she's the one that said, you cannot stop with a master's degree. You have the potential to have a doctorate. Go for it. And so thankfully, I listened to her, and she said, you know, at that time when I started, the DNP was really not an option yet. It was just starting. And so she said, um, I want you to think about the PhD route because that is a well-established degree and it was offered in the same school where I was teaching. So I could take classes, you know, for free and get tuition reimbursement and so on. So, um, yeah, I said, okay, well, if you think that that's a good Um, you know, path for me. I want to stay in academia. Um, I wasn't so thrilled about the research part, to tell you the truth. I just wanted (laughs) to be able to continue teaching and have Uh uh, security in my ability to teach as a PhD prepared nurse. And so that's why I went to um, the PhD program. And thankfully, I ended up loving it also. I I was bitten by the research bug. And so kind of a roundabout uh-huh. way, I ended up in research. So long story. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, you're very well known now in, in research, especially there at UAB and of course at PNAA. Can you tell us a little bit about your focus as far as research is concerned? Mm-hmm. So yes, um, in, in my research, I focus within the um, patient population with cystic fibrosis. So um, cystic fibrosis, I'll explain a little bit. It is a genetic 
disease, um, auto, uh, autosomal recessive transmission. So sort of like sickle cell disease where you inherit, you know, one um, gene from the mom, one gene from the dad. And if you put them together, then mm -hmm. um, you have a 25% chance of having the disease. So that's what CF is. Um, there is an abnormality on chromosome seven that causes an alteration in what's called the CFTR uh, regulator protein gene. Mm -hmm. And this uh, gene is very important because if it's altered, it leads to lots of problems in the body. So it's a multi-system progressive incurable disease. Um, and it affects, you know, multiple systems head to toe, but it causes, for the most part, thickened mucus. Your body produces overly mm -hmm. thick mucus that then gets trapped in the lungs. Mm -hmm. So then if you have really thick secretions, you can't cough it out, then you have lots of lung infections. And many of our CF patients end up needing a lung transplant, for example. Um, so it causes GI issues, it causes reproductive issues. So I do a lot of my research with the CF uh, patient population, and mostly I look at quality of life issues because that's what I'm most interested at, you know, as a, a nurse scientist. Mm -hmm. I look at um, fertility issues, uh, sexual and reproductive health. I have a project on palliative care um, embedding a palliative care specialist um, as part of a CF care team, for example. Um, I even have a project on uh, smoking cessation um, to help uh, caregivers or family members of young children with CF and uh, the, those family care members who are exposing their children to um, smoke to help them stop mm -hmm. smoking. So um, really anything um, that they invite me to do or, you know, I have a passion for really improving the lives of uh, people with CF mm -hmm. and the care that they receive. So how did you become interested in cystic fibrosis? Well, Mindy, if you are paying attention to our first podcast, <laughs> you would have found I out know. about my I husband. Know, but... This, this is how about how about the others who have not received I know, I'm about just kidding. our first I, podcast. <laughs> I want them to go back and listen to that podcast after they listen to this podcast. That's right. That's right. right. Go back. That's, right. that's true. So that's true. Yes. Um, I am personally it's... connected to uh, CF, uh, not just professionally, but personally. So um, my husband of almost 23 years has CF. Again, he was born with it. He was the classic textbook case of CF. And um, I was, um, you know, I was thrown into the world of CF, you know, more from the spouse side, the caregiver side. And we've been through really the ups and downs of CF because, um, you know, he um, he had to have a lung transplant. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, lungs anniversary, or breath wow. day, 10 years wow. ago. He had a lung transplant. Oh, yep, wow. and he's doing well for the lungs. And, um, you know, uh, it's been a roller coaster. Um, mm -hmm. Many of you know, especially the nurses know, that transplant is not necessarily an answer. It's not a cure 
You're essentially um, trading one set of problems with another set of problems because these anti-rejection meds are really tough on the body. And um, but you have to have them in order to protect your, um, you know, donor organs. Otherwise, um, you know, you'll get rejection and all kinds of awful things. So um, I got um, invested into CF because I've gone through um, the ups and downs of CF. Uh, we've been through uh, 13 cycles of uh, fertility treatments, for example, to make our two boys, our two sons. So that's why I'm very interested in the fertility um, and sexual and reproductive health issues in CF. So um, the work I do is really informed by and um, inspired by the people that I know with CF because the CF community is small. This is considered a rare disease. Only um, 30,000 people in the US has CF um, and about 70,000 worldwide. So it's not like cancer, it's not like heart disease, right? Or dementia, all the, the kind of the big names, HIV, AIDS, things like that. So um, you get to know the CF community very well. And so they tell me, you know, they come to me and tell me that um, this is important to them. And why wasn't mm -hmm. I studying it? You know, um, that that should be my next project. Mm -hmm. So they really tell me what I need to be doing, which is great because, you know, it's directly from them. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've seen some of your posts uh, because, you know, I do follow you on Facebook. <laughs> and I follow about, you, sir. Uh, you would go. <laughs> uh, you, you do. You have posted uh, whenever you, you would have gatherings with uh, cystic fibrosis. Uh, what do you call it? A family, a group. Uh, yes. Um, a camp. Can you yeah. tell us more about that? The camp. Yeah. Can you tell us a little yes. bit more about that? Sure. Um, so this is a camp um, that provides respite, um, provides education, and um, it's an annual camp pre-COVID. Of course, everything changed with COVID, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But this is a right. very special camp that, um, that my husband attended when he was six years old. So he was one of the first campers. Their very first camp opened and my husband was six years old and he pretty much attended every year. It's an annual camp, usually wow. somewhere in Florida. And um, as he uh -huh. aged through the program, he transitioned from being a camper to becoming um, a camp counselor. And then now he's the president of that camp. So wow. this is our way of giving back wow. to the CF community yeah. and to this um, yeah. this sunny seashore sea camp is what it's called. And um, this sunny is who we call our CF family. Yep. And um, it's essentially four or five days of um, free time. You know, um, wow. we pay for their um, hotel. We pay for their food. Uh -huh. um, all they have to do is just get get there get to florida and we take care of the rest That's but awesome. it's a good way yeah to kind of get together and um you know 
know that you're not alone, that there are many other people and families dealing with the same stuff because CF is a really hard disease. You know, it's not glamorous. You cannot take a day off. You, you know, every meal you take, you have to take in your pancreatic enzymes or you get a belly pain. Um, so, you know, it's a really tough disease. And so for especially the young, um, young kids with CF, um, it's hard for them because, you know, as a pediatric nurse, I know that all they want is just to be normal, right? To be just like everybody else, just like their friends. Mm -hmm. And when they can't do that, it's very hard on them. And there is lots of depression and mm -hmm. anxiety that happens in the CF uh, world. Wow. That's yeah. nice to hear. It looks like it's very successful uh, with regards, especially the cap. That was a, is that a foundation type? Yes, it is. It's, no? yeah, it's a 501c3. Uh -huh. oh. And um, it's, it, oh, it, it's, we fundraise for it. You know, we don't take any money from oh, anyone. Okay. And again, um, usually we we have about wow. seventy five families that we invite. Wow! And they get you know four or five wow. days of just you know having a little bit of a summer break, you know. And mm -hmm. um, not only do they have fun in the sun or um, usually on a beach because salty air is good for their lungs. Um, they, right. you know, have exercise. Mm -hmm. They um, we have uh, usually a couple of lectures. Um, where we invite our medical director, for example, or myself to give updates on what's up and coming in CF research. So mm -hmm. it's not just fun and games. We actually do infuse it with some educational content so that um, the families mm -hmm. come and they get kind of the most recent things happening um, in clinical care and research. Yeah. Well, thank you for that information. Would you mind sharing what you are currently working on in research or what are some of your funded projects other than the, the cap that you mentioned? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I'm working on is actually funded by the CF Foundation, and it is looking at fertility preservation in men with CF before they have a lung transplant. And the catalyst for this project was um, I was talking with a husband and wife, um, the husband has CF, had CF, he actually mm -hmm. passed away uh, recently, but um, he was uh, at that time about a year after transplant. Um, and they've been mm -hmm. married for a, a little while. They were actually high school sweethearts, okay? And so because of the husband's declining health, they decided to wait to have children because they knew that, as you remember, having children, you have sleep deprivation. It's just a really hard time being new parents. Right. And so um, what ended up happening was they waited at least a year after his transplant when he was more stable, his lungs are good, his meds are stable. They mm -hmm. went to see a fertility specialist. And during that first consult, the fertility specialist um, sat them down and said uh, something that they did not expect. So the fertility mm -hmm. specialist said to them, I'm sorry, but I do not recommend that you use your own sperm because you are on anti-rejection meds. That can have teratogenic effects that we don't know of. So he said, I recommend you use donor sperm instead. 
So when he heard this, he felt like he was punched in the gut. He said that he almost fell off his chair because no one ever told him that he needed to actually do the sperm aspiration and cryopreservation, freeze his sperm before transplant, which for men is actually a pretty easy, relatively simple procedure compared to what the women have to go through. And I know this because I was a professional infertility patient for many, many years. And so um, he was so disappointed. He was shocked. He was angry. And he said, why did anyone tell me this? Mm -hmm. He felt that his ability to have biological children was taken away from Mm -hmm. him that he wasn't even given that chance because someone did not tell him that he should have frozen his sperm before transplant. And so that started this idea for me, like, oh my gosh, you know, we need to do a better job telling our pre-transplant patients, not just CF or lung transplant, but transplant in general, right? That if they're gonna embark on um, a, a transplant journey, then they need to know that this is probably something they want to do if they want to have the ability to have biological children. So it's very similar to what our oncology patients go through. Now, you may know this, you know, it's standard care, right? That when a woman, for example, gets diagnosed with Uh, I don't know, breast cancer, you know, cervical cancer, whatnot, some kind of cancer that requires chemotherapy or radiation, part of that dialogue with their provider is fertility preservation. They talk about the impact of chemotherapy and radiation on their reproductive health and their organs. Mm -hmm. And so they recommend that, yes, you need to, you know, harvest your eggs and freeze them, cryopreserve them just in case you Mm -hmm. ever want to have the ability to become pregnant or have biological children, even through surrogacy later on. And so Mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, a lot of work has been done with the oncology population. It's not the same with the transplant population. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm starting with just my CF Mm -hmm. little population that I know with a lung transplant population that I know, and hopefully mm-hmm. the results of this project can be applied to other transplant populations. So that would be the next step. So um, that's kind of what I'm working on among other other projects. So, mm, nice yeah, Sigrid, in addition to the research on fertility issues, uh, what are the other research priorities in CF? Oh, great question. So a research priority in CF right now is finding a cure, finding a cure. So the CF Foundation, which is the the big organization that heads the philanthropy side, the research side, clinical care. I mean, that's a big foundation um, that that we refer to. Um, They're committed to um, finding a cure. So they're spending a lot of money, you know, funding different projects to see if we can find a cure through gene editing and gene therapy. So those are the two things that they're working on. Um, Even though we've had some recent successes 
through what we call our highly effective modulator therapy. So I'm going to just make it simple. Mm -hmm. These are precision medicines. We call them modulators. Um, and these modulators actually address the physiological problem in CF. Remember that CFDR protein that's altered. Mm -hmm. These medications go in there and fix it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's not 100%. And not everybody are eligible to be on this modulators. And so, um, and these modulators have bad side effects too. You know, we're hearing a lot of issues with uh, mental health on these modulators. Some people um, gain a lot of weight. And so um, body image issues become a problem. So there's a lot of other considerations. Um, the modulators is not a cure. It's great mm -hmm. and it's life-saving and it can be a miracle drug in some, in some people's cases, but it's not for everybody and it doesn't work well for everybody. So really what we're pushing for right now is um, the cure, which is gene editing and gene therapy. And there's some movement in that. Um, mostly in Europe right now, um, but we're also making headway here in the U.S. Uh-huh. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, that's good. You know, in research, I venture to say, and you know this more than I do, there, there are successes. I'm hearing it from uh, from what, what you just mentioned mm -hmm. a while ago. But there are some challenges. Mm -hmm. What would that be? What would be the challenges in um, cystic fibrosis research? Okay, so yeah, um, challenges that I can think of right off the bat is money, right? Research funding. Mm. Um, remember that C CF is a rare disease. So there's not a whole lot of money, right, to be had if you're only catering to 30,000 people in the U.S., um, research and development dollars, I mean, that's millions and billions of dollars being spent to develop these modulator therapies. And so they have to somehow recoup that, right? They have, that's why the prices on these medications, a one-year supply of one of these medications called Trikafta, if you don't have health insurance, is over $300,000 a year. Wow. Who can afford that? Right. Yeah. And so um, oh, it's very expensive to come up with these modulators. Um, research funding is um, is really, you know, prioritized for those that have higher impact. You know, um, mm -hmm. again, I'm talking about oncology, uh, HIV, mm -hmm. um, heart disease, right? Those are the big winners, if you want to call it like that, um, when it comes to getting research funding dollars. Mm -hmm. um, for CF, uh, it's, it's, we're lucky if we get a little bit here and there. Um, so uh, we're constantly trying to fundraise mm -hmm. and, and find good um, philanthropy and organizations that would um, partner with scientists to um, help come up with um, some of these interventions that could mm -hmm. potentially help. And I guess another issue, um, another challenge that we are, um, you know, experiencing in CF research is um, getting people into clinical trials, right? So study participants mm -hmm. 
who um, may hesitate or they're uh, nervous about joining a clinical trial or a research study. Um, I would have to say that in CF, thankfully, we have um, a lot of our CF um, patients, they're used to participating in research. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have one of the most robust and accurate uh, CF patient registry. It's a data that's compiled on all the people in the US and mm -hmm. there's a counterpart in Europe um, where they collect lots of demographic information on the patients. And this is gathered through uh, CF Foundation accredited centers um, across the US. And so there's about 120 of the CF uh, centers and they all get their data together and submit it to the CF Foundation. Um, and so the patients who get seen in the CF centers, they're used to participating in research. But the issue here is that some of them have research participation fatigue, meaning they're being asked to participate in probably five studies in one week, right? Wow. And so that can be drug trials, that could be device trials, that could be behavioral intervention studies, you know, things like that. And so because we're only dealing with a small number of people, the same people are going to get asked over and over and over. And so the importance of participation is really key. And um, right now, what's really hard to, um, to get are um, patients with CF who belong to racial and ethnic minority groups. Okay, so when we think of CF, usually what comes to mind, especially in our textbooks, are Caucasians or those from European descent, because the majority of patients with CF are Caucasians. However, because of global travel and intermixing, right, um, we are now seeing more and more of our minority groups, underrepresented groups, being diagnosed with CF, but at a later stage. So usually we get it during newborn screening um, and they get a sweat test and it's positive as an infant. But now we're hearing about 40, 50, 60 year old men and women with CF getting diagnosed for the first time, oh. even though they've had symptoms all along. Oh. Their symptoms are mild, okay? So maybe they were misdiagnosed with asthma because they've had a wheeze all their life, right? Maybe they were misdiagnosed with COPD because of their breathlessness, you know, and, and their dyspnea. Uh, maybe they were diagnosed with IBS, even though that's really CF you know, with a CF gut. So now they're coming back and seeing, wow, you know, we're seeing a lot more um, African-Americans uh, being diagnosed later with CF. Latinos are getting diagnosed with CF later in life. Um, I, in fact, I just found out there was one little girl in Thailand that was diagnosed with CF. And I saw her profile on one of the CF uh, Facebook pages that I follow. And um, it's quite an amazing story, but you know, you don't really hear of Asians being diagnosed with CF, but this little girl has it. And so it's just a matter of time that we're seeing some of these rarer mutations in CF. 
So, Sigrid, um, what would you like to say to our listeners who may be hesitant or concerned about participating in research studies or clinical trials? Uh, um, so I would say, ask the questions. You know, you're not forced to participate in anything. This is all voluntary. If you're nervous about something, if you're not sure, ask the principal investigators, the research team, mm -hmm. all those hard questions, you know, ask about potential um, side effects of medications, ask about the benefits. Um, so sometimes, you know, we, we get nervous about the unknown and rightfully so, right? Um, but right. if you have a conversation with the, the research team, they'll be honest with you and say, look, the risk is minimal, okay? Um, not more than minimal risk is really what, what we like to say in research. And so have them have a conversation with not just the research team, but with their clinicians, their, their care teams uh -huh. to say, oh, it's okay, you know, the risk is minimal, but the potential benefits far outweigh the risks. And so... Uh -huh. Um, uh, we also, uh, want to, I guess, um, uh, I don't know, um, appeal is the word appeal mm -hmm. to the altruistic side of people, wow. meaning we want to let them know that even if the results of the study does not benefit you today, mm -hmm. the results will actually inform the next mm -hmm. steps of what we need to do so that future mm -hmm. patients and future generations mm -hmm. can yeah. actually benefit, right? This is how science keeps moving, right? Mm -hmm. Someone's gonna yeah. have to actually participate yeah. in order to move things along yeah. and to advance progress. And so that altruism, especially for a small group like CF, um, most of them yeah. do um, agree. Once they see that, you know, I've, hear, I've heard parents say to me, I know that this might not help my baby, but if it can mm -hmm. save another baby 10 years from now, 20 years from now, from having to go through the same pain that my baby is going through, absolutely, I'll do it. Okay. So um, that's what I would say. Ask the hard questions, you know, don't be afraid mm -hmm. to have those types of conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah. I see. Well, you know, before we end, I want to <laughs> talk about something. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> about, and I know you're yes. from Iloilo. Okay. I know you're from Iloilo and you're from the town yes. of Molo. So I love Pancit <laughs> Molo. So for those who does not know Pancit Molo, yes. our audience, can you describe this? I think to Mindy us? and Manny, you both can describe it as well as I do. <laughs> I unfortunately, I think you've eaten it. You know what it is. It's just one of the best little soups yeah, that is. you can have, right? It has a clear broth. It's yeah. uh, like a dumpling um, in the broth and just a little bit of, of meat with a soft wonton uh -huh. shell. It's really, yes. really, I I don't know. It's just Delicious. really good. 
Um, <laughs> it's delicious. Yes. And of course, right. um, the other thing that we're known for in Iloilo <laughs> is bachoy. So I'm not sure if you've ever bachoy, had bachoy. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. famous for we bachoy. We another yeah. one. Yes. We have, yeah. actually, we have a, we have yeah. a restaurant How here. About, I'm know. so jealous, Mindy. Uh, but it's in Los Angeles. I also love uh, Sigrid. I also love <laughs> Piaya. Oh, Piaya is the, so good. Yes. A, a, What's Piaya? Yeah. Flat, it's a flat, flaky, um, flaky with sesame seeds in the, in the top. And it and has the filling sugar. Is the best one. Yes. Yeah. It's sugar. Yeah. So it's not good if you have diabetes. I'm diabetic. I can't have it. <laughs> yeah, but the crunch when you bite into it. Yes. And then the feeling yes. it melts in your mouth. Oh my goodness. Piaya. Oh, it's so good. Oh yeah. My goodness. Make Same sure you eat it over a all plate, right. unlike my children, oh, because God. it goes all over the place. <laughs> it's very messy. <laughs> you know how no. to cook it? You know how to cook it? <laughs> I don't. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish uh, I wish I know how to cook these things. Oh, wow! I was gonna I was gonna ask you. To <laughs> oh, you're funny, Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was gonna... <laughs> I think there's plenty oh. of restaurants in New York oh, where we goodness. can go eat some good food. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can't wait to see you guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> I know it's been a while. <laughs> Me too. I'm so excited. Okay, and that is all that we have for this episode. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Sigrid Ladores, my co-host Mindy Ofiana, our director and producer Rodney Cahudo, Carol Robles, our PNAA chair for communications and marketing, our advisor, PNAA Foundation President Nancy Hoff, and our executive producers, PNAA President. Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia and PNAA Executive Director Carmina Bautista. Join us every week here and rise up. Until then, keep on rising. See you next week. This program is made possible through the NIH All of Us Research Program. PNAAF is a national collaborator of the Asian Engagement and Recruitment Corps launched by the Asian Health Coalition, which is a national community engagement partner for the NIH all of us research program.